Today's interview is with artist Jim Drain. Jim is currently teaching at Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island, where he went to school. He was part of the Forcefield Collective and the Fort Thunder Collective, which were featured in the 2002 Winnie Biennial. His textile art is being seen worn by Bjork, Eraserada, and several other celebrities, and it's really brilliant. He does these installations with textiles too, and this is a great uh, conversation. Good morning, Jim Drain. Good morning, Patrick Green. Uh, that's your, is that your studio? You're in your studio? We moved into a house last fall, and it's, um, yeah, I didn't get a new studio, so everything's down here at this moment. You're teaching at uh, RISD? Or? Yeah, I'll be teaching this fall. Weren't, weren't you in L.A. for a while, too? Yeah. Pop around. We were, we moved back almost three years, I think two or three years ago. And my wife had a job out there. And so I went, I followed her out there. And it was, we were there, I was there for maybe a little bit more than a year. Oh, okay. How'd you like LA? It was my second time living there. And I, I liked it. It's, I have a lot of friends there. And it's not an easy city to live in. And we were expecting, or we were wanting to have a, a kid and we do now and even before she came along we knew that having a kid in LA would just be really tough and the commute would be really hard so we moved closer to be with my wife's parents here in Boston. Oh yeah I've, I've actually I've been all over California but I've never been to Los Angeles. <laughs> I've been to San Francisco a ton of times and I've been um, like all I don't know why I've missed Los Angeles so. But yeah. It's a pretty weird place. Yeah, I imagine the driving would be like, it's, it sounds like you have to do, all, you might have to do a lot of driving. Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest and driving an hour to get to, I don't know, the grocery store wasn't a big deal, but yeah. so it just becomes part of your day and part of your planning and becomes second nature. But once you step out of that, you realize that your life is just dictated by driving <laughs> so often. So. I don't like that, yeah. What, where'd you grow up? In Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, I, I, we lived in Cleveland and Rocky River when I was a kid. Oh, cool. Um, That's we lived in Detroit and Cleveland. And, uh, nice. We were, yeah, we were in Detroit in the city, but we were in Rocky River in Cleveland, which I had fond memories. I left when I was 11, but, you know. Good public TV. What's that? There was some good, weird public TV in oh, Cleveland. Yeah. I probably was being 11. I was probably not. Just, <laughs> I was like playing Little League and sledding and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Those were my key things. Yeah. I, I don't know if this was like, if this was like a, a joke or true. It's probably a joke. But I was reading a Miami Rail article. It was your auto, your autobiography. <laughs> but it was oh, yeah. like, what? Who's there in with somebody else, right? Scott. Did some editing, but yeah. Did you play baseball? Because I saw something. Yeah, I grew up, I was never really good, but I, I played all the way to my senior year. Yeah, I played baseball too. And it was like, I was obsessed and I think I thought I was better than I was. <laughs> I think that's the nature of baseball though. It, it's such a slow and tedious game that you like, it's hard not to like project onto the game. <laughs> like fantasies of grandeur because it's 
you'll be standing in the outfield for hours as a kid with no action. And so it's easy to start daydreaming, I think. And that's like uh, the idea that right field is like, protect, like in the majors, it was like usually a really good player. But in Little League, it's, it's more like nobody hits it there. Yeah. Uh, my brother was like a really good pitcher. And we all thought he was going to make the majors. But they threw, he threw his arm out in high school. He's, he, was, he barely pitched 11th and 12th grade. And wow. So it was, uh, and, I, and I thought, and it, but it made me also realize how, like how, what, how many factors like that are too. Especially back then, they didn't even know when they were throwing your arm out. They just pitch them all the time. Yeah. I can still feel my shoulder. It's like much looser than my left arm. <laughs> I did my rotator cuff about 10 years ago and I feel like it's I used to like playing catch and throwing a football and everything, and now it's, it hurts when I do it, which yeah. kind of really bums me out. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you're an artist, right? <laughs> That's right. What do you, have you been doing, have you been showing lately? Or are you, I know that we have, we're in a pandemic, but are you uh, working on any projects now or? There's a show up at the DeRosa Center for the Contemporary Art in, in Napa Valley, uh, or Napa, California, and that, it opened, it was a strange time. It opened mid-February. And so as I was flying back, there was a lot of talk about Wuhan and just whether borders would be closed. And I remember being at SFO and seeing people walking off the airplanes with masks on in the international part of the airport. And it was this feeling of dread in a way. <laughs> of like, the feeling that everyone has now, but it was like that sort of first signs were happening right when the show opened. So maybe two weeks later it closed, and so it's been closed ever since. Wow. That was... So wait, you saw the people with masks in February coming off the plane? Yeah. They were, I went... Because SFO is full of amazing public work, and Claire Rojas has a big mural in the international part of the airport, and so I... I had an hour to kill and just went looking at all this different artwork and um, that, so, uh, San Francisco airport yeah they have it's pretty incredible who they have in that building um, I've heard they uh, I haven't been to that airport in a long time but I've heard they have a lot yeah over collection it's pretty great yeah what um yeah, that's really sad that looking at things, I look at things online, exhibitions, but it's not the same. It's definitely not. I, you know, when you see something, like in your stuff has some mass and texture and that kind of thing. So it's like a thumbnail doesn't always do it. Yeah, I know it's, I'll be teaching, well, for teaching, it's hard to, we're going to be partly remote. And it's so great to take students to exhibitions and it's yeah. going to be tough to do it virtually. Are you still, you're still with Green Neftali Gallery or New York? I haven't worked with them basically since, I guess, 2009-ish. Or Oh, I thought you were actually still uh, doing stuff with them. Yeah. I'm way off. Okay. <laughs> Are you represented by a gallery? I work with Natalie Card Gallery in New York, which is in Chinatown. But she, yeah, she's still doing virtual ex exhibitions and at the beginning of in March and April, everyone was like, 
checking in with each other and been a little bit since I've checked in, but. Are you, um, is it like, I think pretty much most museums or galleries are closed. They're not really, I don't know, except for virtual shows. I think ICA Boston is open, which oh, yeah. is surprising. Oh. Just not, I don't know. I don't know if I would risk. I don't know. <laughs> it's tough to say because these institutions really need bodies to enter the museum, but at the same time, it's yeah. all those jobs that are related to the museum too. Yeah. I used to be a, a preparator for a long time and I, and it was like, I really actually love that job because you just get these crazy installations that you had to set up and everything. And it just, but there is, I can't imagine keeping my distance from people if you're doing that kind of thing too, you know? Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I was at ICA. I went there the first time this past fall. It was a great museum. Yeah. But I don't know if people are riding the elevators too or whatever, you know, like too. It's just, it seems like it's impossible. And a lot of people, like I'm in uh, outside of Orlando and it seems like people, a lot of people are very oblivious to the whole thing and they're not really, I go to the grocery store and people are walking into you. This isn't the time. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's frustrating to hear, but. And a lot of people, and there's still people without masks. And there's like sort of a mandate in the, in the area, but they don't enforce it. So people don't do anything. They don't listen. Uh, Florida. <laughs> yeah, you know how Florida is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like, a, to me, a Florida is like a hard place to explain to somebody who hasn't. It's a, it's a mess, but it's also, there's part of its appeal is it's a mess to me. And I, I remember I read something, or maybe you told me this when we were, when you said, but you said something about when you did art in Miami that you could, you can do anything you want if you're an artist in Miami or something, or there was something, I felt like there was some kind of, Maybe it was you, maybe it was somebody else actually, but there, that, that there was like no real, this is the way of Miami art. There's no uh, true like scene in a way. There's like art, but there's not, but it's not really guided by anything in a way. You know, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That could be applied to Florida culture too. <laughs> it's like. I was reading, somebody sent me a thing about a sculpture project and well, I'll send it to you, but it's in Orlando and it has. It's like a three hundred sixty thousand dollar budget, and it's under, it's under the interstate, and it's but it had all these things that like Orlando is a little more micromanaged too, yeah. like political, nothing related to pulse, nothing. Five only five percent of it can have text on it. It was but it was a lot of rules for, um, and I thought that's three hundred sixty thousand dollars. That's appealing, but there's a, but it just seemed like there was other rules too, and I just thought that they. I, I had my gallery for five years in Orlando, and uh, there's like a lot of people that <laughs> would that just would get upset about like stupid things. I would put like really things that I thought would people would be offended by, and nobody would even say anything. Um. You know, <laughs> we had this one guy that made a sculpture, like a flat wooden sculpture with a really long penis and a sundial hanging off the end of the penis. <laughs> And everybody goes, and I put it by the window and somebody's like, anybody offended? I said, nobody said anything. That's and funny. Then one day a high school class comes in and the lady who's a teacher, she's a little uptight. And she was like, oh my God, I, you should have, I did, I should have asked you what was you were showing. And she's, and the kids are like, whatever. They don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> and the teacher's all alarmed about it. But the kids are like laughing for a few minutes and then they're looking at something else. Yeah. <laughs> but, That's funny. 
but it is like that Orlando, there's like that Disney kind of backdrop kind of thing all the time, or maybe it's not even a backdrop. But. So wait, I was, I was always, I always thought you were part of Fort Thunder, but you're, it was more like the force field collective, is that? Uh, maybe. Or are they part of each other, sort of, I guess? They're kind of part of each other. So there was, I guess the site itself was this kind of, it was a warehouse that was in part of town that felt like it was really far away from school. I think. And you were going to RISD at the time, right? Yeah. A lot of Brown and RISD students that were part of that sort of art community really tried to separate themselves from the school, even though it's because everyone was together because of the school. So it was early 2020s kind of um, mentality. But yeah, there would be a flea market every weekend and we were living in the space and I think it was, the landlord didn't really care what we did and we could make a lot of noise and- um, You were living in the space, we also had performances and exhibition type things? Yeah, I guess the ethos was that it was a community space despite people living there. This is pre-social media and so friends that had started it, they were much more adept at like booking bands and so at least once a month there was a band that would play there. So it meant that we really got the space, we decorated the space and made it like inviting for people to come see it and wanted to be different than the club and we didn't really serve alcohol or I think we actually banned alcohol and smoking at one point. We just were really afraid of any kind of fire or any kind of hazards. And it just, people really, you entered a space that he knew that was special. And so people really respected that. And he, I think it made the music different too. Being in someone's home and being in just unusual space for seeing music. And so this is a long answer, but basically, so Matt and Ara, started making music within that space. And then that project grew and stopped and started a bunch of times. So I guess Force Field would be considered like part of just another uh, music project that existed at Fort Thunder. Yeah. Is that, cause yeah, um, I've seen Lightning Bolt a few times. I remember Lightning, they were, uh, you know, a big part of that. And I think Matt Brinkman was at the Atlantic Center for the Arts or one, like a couple people maybe were. Okay. You, yeah, like, uh, yeah, we, we used to do a bunch of house shows and it was so amazing. And I was so surprised at how, like, well it actually worked out, too. And yeah. Kind of, and I miss things like even the idea of doing things that you can't even do that right now. Yeah, it's a different world. <laughs> you, because I swore that, because I saw that Fort Thunder was in the Whitney uh, Biennial in 2002, but I thought in 2006 I saw something, too. Is that, was there something there, too, or do you know, or? I was um, at Whitney Biennial. Just two, two. That was, yeah, that was, so that was just Force, so Force Field, so it started in 1995-ish. And so there was a lot of ephemera, like tapes and records and costumes and videos that were being made over the course of five or six, seven years. And so at some point we did a mini retrospective at the space in Brooklyn. Uh -huh. 2001 and it was we had a video that came out I think in 2000 2001 around there uh, so it was a way like for us to reestablish like, all right this is what Forestfield has been very 
modestly and very just every once in a while kind of thing. And at that point I was starting to learn to admit. And so things changed once I entered into not just the music space, but like an art exhibition space. And the curator for the Winnie Biennial, he was really taking the um, prompt of like it being an American exhibition seriously. So he went to all parts of the country and really tried to bring as many voices as possible. And at the same time, it just a lot of like things came together really quickly. Nest Magazine was a magazine of interiors and they uh -huh. did a big um, spread on Port Thunder. And so Larry Rinder, who was a curator, saw that spread and was friends with the publisher and or the editor and publisher, and, and saw the show in Brooklyn. And so then asked Forcefield, can you do an installation in the space? Just go for it. And it took a lot of trust because we hadn't done any kind of installation before. But we were taking on that sort of idea of we could invent something based on what we already had in, in a way, but it was a completely new kind of step forward for us even though it was, it was like such a public and kind of international venue to yeah. be doing something. It, it felt brand new to a lot of people, but it felt brand new to us too. Who, who all is in Forcefield or was in Forcefield? The tough answer because yeah, okay. like, the premise is that everyone had a pseudonym, but at this point it's, I can tell you, but I think that's important to just note. I think it speaks to this, anonymity that we were entering into a space that was so visible but we yeah. entered in as anonymous sort of artists with these sort of stage not stage i guess stage names in a way but it's matt brinkman and r peterson were they started the project and then me and then leaf uh goldberg joined on later in things so you've never done an installation because I, I mean like your videos and everything they show I mean, like costuming and all kinds of things that look almost, some of it looks like an installational too, or stage set kind of things. And Yeah, I think it borrowed heavily from this Fort Thunder sort of ethic and Matt Brinkman really and R. Peterson really guided the sort of like visual uh, component of this field of being this kind of passive aggressive visual experience where the whole idea was that it was like this assault of sound and how could that translate into music or into visual like a visual assault too so there was a lot of there was a little bit of machismo in there but i think it was more just about what kind of sensory experience could happen and the costuming and so that everything all the world felt around it was about taking you to this other place that wasn't that was scary at first and also really funny and it was about transporting this sort of viewer and, and sensory experience in a way to this different place. Did, did you, yeah, because like I, I said, I'd seen the lightning bolt a few times and I remember it's machismo, but it's playful and silly too. It's, yeah. So it's, right. it sort of feels like it's not in a way. Did, did you, when you were in Miami with the Miami noise scene at all, or was that kind of, you're not doing that anymore? Or, or? I wasn't making music, but there was a good, the noise festival was every February and a lot of friends came down for that and which one? Sorry, you kind of you bleeped out, so I didn't Oh, this guy Rat Bastard would host yeah. I actually uh, interviewed Yeah. 
he hosted the noise events in, in Miami. Yeah, I just, I never really got into making music in Miami for some reason. Yeah, I played at INC a few times, but it's been a while. It's been over. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but it's, no, it's great. I interviewed uh, Rat, um, and I'm going to probably put it up in a couple of weeks, put his interview up. It was cool. a very entertaining interview. But <laughs> yeah. But like I like about that thing is like Thurston Moore and Iggy Pop show up or Thurston Moore just start playing or whatever. And yeah. Um, you never know what you're going to get. And that place, Churchill's, is just disgusting. Yeah, it's a special place. <laughs> disgusting in a sort of appealing way. <laughs> I yeah. wrote an article um, a few years ago for the Brooklyn Rail about Rat Bastard. Um, oh, cool. A lot of stuff with some New York people. So. Yeah, he's an important musician yeah yeah he's really supported a lot of people yeah Miami got such an interesting kind of scene too it feels like it's over isolated and it's almost sometimes it feels like people aren't even aware that anybody's looking at them yeah like, especially INC or something yeah well it, yeah it's funny the people drive thousands of miles to go there and arrive without any even board plans they just show it's amazing who it just it's like he's like the um pied piper for all these noise musicians yeah he's been doing it for a long time too and a tireless it's a did you like living in miami or or did you how do you feel about that yeah i love miami of course it changed as or i changed living there and understood it said it in different ways living there and I'm really glad I lived there too. I still have a lot of friends that are there and a lot of ways I can't go back. I, I can't wait to go back. I, there are a lot of places that I miss. So it was good. I'm, I really, I've moved to Providence four times. This is my fourth time living here and I think I'm gonna stay. But yeah, I'm really happy. I feel really good about living in Miami. It was, I'm sorry. You did some uh, Locust projects too, didn't you? Yeah, that was 2010 or something. Yeah, yeah that's always that's an interesting space to me. It's like really cool space. Yeah. They, they're just do installation. There are so many individuals, collectors, and and artist-run spaces that are really supportive of artists. Yeah. Naomi Fisher and I ran a space. She started with Hernan Bass and. I took over Hernan's role when I was there and I'm really proud of the projects we did and we felt like, like we wanted to provide an alternative voice to like our puzzle and show that people live in Miami and make art 11 months out of the year, like the other 11 months out of the year and not just December 3rd through 6th. <laughs> and it got me to meet a lot of artists in Miami too and just really appreciate what was there. Yeah, the, I, that's actually my least favorite time to go look at art is Art Basel because it's just, um, it's so crowded and get, like getting around and things are expensive and yeah, I, when there's, when it appears that there's nothing going on, there's always something going on. I think it, it's like a convention city. So it's, the hard part was feeling like you could feel it building in October, you start preparing for Art Basel and to think that you're preparing basically three months of your life to this one event. It's kind of hard on artists in Miami, I think. After a while, it, I saw it as 
like uh, it kind of was draining a little bit as much as I liked having the whole world come to Miami for that week. Yeah, it's really fun, but it's, it's, it's also when I, the article I wrote about Rat, we'd met down at, to see a show that was put on by the New Museum in New York, and and Rat brought, what's his name? Oh, God, I can't remember the guy. Steve, or the sax player that was with the Stooges, he passed away a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, but the Stooges were playing on the beach, and it was so, it was just so cool. I don't know, but it's free. Things like that were really fun. And, um, exactly. I was there. I saw that show too. That was pretty oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I, I love Miami. I love going down there, but it's, and I miss, and I keep wanting to go down because I'd go down at least twice a year to go check out art and maybe show, see yeah. some shows. And, and um, but it's a bummer that it's three hours away and I can't really, there's not really anything to do down there for me. Yeah. Uh, I recommend the Everglades. It's, that's my, if I were to go back, I'd be going. To go camping. I, I love, I always wanted to do that, the 99 mile trail where you can kayak or canoe or whatever. Oh, cool. And they have these like chickies, those things, like the things on the dock where they're camping. Oh, exactly. But it's a 99 mile trail. I can't remember what it's called, but if you look that up, but it's, it's like something that I really always think about doing, just kayaking it because it's, it would be really fun to do. I love those. How beautiful. Yeah. And those trails, uh, those trails are like original, like Native American, like yeah. passageways. Like yeah. all that has been chopped away for hundreds of years. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. I yeah, I went a couple of years ago to Everglades City too, which is a really strange place. I don't know if you've been there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you but like in the '80s when more than half of the town was arrested for smuggling. Oh my God. Because it was, I mean, it was 800 people there, but apparently everybody knew it or was in on it. But it was like, because it was so like part of the town, like they would just bring stuff in there because the whole town was just, but it was this huge bust and it was, it was like kind of just good old boy type things. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. I mean, that's another thing about Florida too. It's just, I love the idea that there's uh, great art museums. And then there's that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it's only, what, an hour and a half, two hours away from each other? Yeah, yeah. It's, have you, when you guys did that, Ben Russell and you, I, I showed that film, the Ponce de Leon film at my gallery. Thanks. Yeah, it was, that was great. It was like, but was that, I mean, it's filmed in Miami, right? I think, it was filmed, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, what was, uh, like, inspiration for that? Because I know that it looked like, a bunch of young people doing Ponce de Leon. I know that it's, it is like Miami though. Miami's either really old people or really young people, it feels. Let's see, we were, I think we were interested in, well, Ben, ben has like a much longer record of filming these incredible kind of journeys. He did this one film where these two brothers, there was a massacre that happened. I'm going to really be bad on the details there, but so like he followed this path they took when this massacre happened and followed their the pathway to find help. And so the whole movie is just like following these two people on this path and, and 
These movies really, you, be, you really have to invest yourself into watching them. And once you're there, it takes you to this really sublime place. Uh-huh. And I think our sort of point of meeting was maybe thinking about this like space of eternity and like how Ponce de Leon, as much as it's comical, was like the search for this eternal sort of fountain of youth kind of experience. We just talked about what that would look like and like how does that how does it fail as an idea and how does that work in terms of yeah the Miami landscape too in a way uh, he came I, I feel like I <laughs> got in the way often with Ben because he was he's such a skilled filmmaker but it just meant we took this sort of I think different from his other films is that we took more of a sculptural approach of trying to we use these prosthetics and we were playing around with the The structure of the filming was in this like rotational apparatus that rotated both 180 but also 360 around. Yeah. yeah, it was like looking at, it was like trying to see a, a, a two-dimensional two sort of viewing experience in three. You're frozen. But it was like seeing this two-dimensional like filming, film viewing experience and trying to see it from three dimensions, but also understanding the failure of doing that too. I think I just said was, it was like a game passing between me and Ben of, uh, where the anchoring idea was the Ponce de Leon, so. And it seems can't... like that idea is so relevant in Florida too. Like people just move here with vague dreams a lot. A lot of people do. Yeah. I know people try to get a job at the theme park and they come from someplace up north. Yeah. <laughs> They're not always there, those jobs, or they don't pay that well a lot of times. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's where that movie, like Florida Project or something comes. Oh yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah, because it does feel like there's such a mixed bag of people coming here and it's not really, I don't know what, Miami's attracting a lot more artists now and all, but, but Orlando, uh, attracts a, a strange mixed bag. And there's a lot of really amazing creative people here and really interesting people, but you also get the kind of lost kind of s- situation too. Yeah, people wash up on the beaches of Florida. Yeah. And his legacy of Jim Crow is pretty strong in Florida too. And so <laughs> it, it's a weird place that doesn't exist in one fixed time in a way. It's like many different things. And it feels like it, it doesn't feel like the South, but it has like some Southern kind of attitudes. And it's very, like the cities are more liberal, but outside the cities are not liberal at all usually. And some of the cities are pretty mixed bag anyway, too. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just, did, was, was Ben, was he part of Fort Thunder? Didn't he go to, wasn't he part of that whole thing or no? He was, he was at Brown the same time that I was at RISD. So we, were, we knew each other then. And we had a lot of mutual friends. Did you ever do any projects with them before the move? No, this is a big leap. Okay. We, I think, proposed the idea a few years before. And he, he found funding through the uh, Grace Foundation to, uh-huh. to get it done. That's like really kicked us into gear to get it started.
Is he is he in Chicago or is that? Um, he was. He was teaching in Chicago, and I have no idea where Ben is <laughs> at this point. I need to connect with him again. But he had stopped teaching, and he was in Los Angeles as of last year. Okay. So what, like, what do you, like, how do you see, like, the future with, the given the situation and your situation, uh, the future for doing art or whatever, or your other creative, any other creative projects? I don't feel so existential about, like, the future of art necessarily. <laughs> because I think so often people have been turning to art as a real refuge and medicine and um, as a place for activation and, and community. So it's not gonna go away. <laughs> I think there's been a question, maybe a, a reflection on the <coughs> side of art making that has been really needed. And- Which side? Just the commerce side of- Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that will change pretty dramatically. But I, I've been really enjoying teaching and my students are not going to stop making artwork either. And I feel like they, like art is like the slippery thing that it's, it's always going to be around and it's quicksilver and it will fill spaces um, as spaces are made. And I think it's actually, I think it's a really exciting time to be an artist. And there are a lot of different ways to, for me, it's been a lot of reflection on the past 10 or 15 years and seeing ways that I could have done things differently or spoken up differently and, and what changes I want to make for my practice now. I, I feel like the, there, there aren't any, many exhibitions coming up and in some ways that feels good to be able to have that time to reflect on what kind of exhibition I want and what do I want to say and yeah. lose my community. And I think also good question too is who, who am I in the way of maybe I need to step back and see who I can support instead of trying to, I feel like oftentimes as an artist, you like try to insert yourself into different spaces or shows or whatever. And maybe that isn't a good time to, it's not the right time to do that right now. And it's more about supporting people that haven't had a, had a voice or, or, or platform too. So. I like the teacher. Inside. Yeah. I think it comes from running an independent art space too and finding space for people that you, saw were so talented but weren't getting recognized and i like that side of things I, it comes from fort thunder too of like finding space for the underdog or for the brilliant mind that people need to see and and hear i love that side of things yeah because i i thought when i had my gallery it was one of the probably the more contemporary space in orlando but it would i really have tried to make it Feel a bit community and really was I was really interested in encouraging people that weren't encouraged yeah I people would come into me come to me and sometimes somebody would want to show and I would actually like what they did and but it wasn't really right for what I was doing at the time it's hard to explain that to somebody because they yeah. just take it personally but I think that I also like I don't know if the artist is Scott Hawking in Detroit he does those big urban like monumental and he makes it out of they're almost like earthwork type things, or they are earthwork type things. Uh -huh. But I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and he was just talking about how 
he wasn't going to wait to get into a gallery. He was just going to start just making these crazy installations and taking photo and documenting them like wherever. And yeah. I, told him, I said, if you're an artist, you don't worry about somebody saying, letting you show, just do something, do something creative. Yeah. I think it's hard when you, I think for a long time, my income was tied to my artwork. And I think it's tough when you're, when your artwork has to function beyond just being what it needs to be. <laughs> right, and, right. You know, it's like a way to pay the bills. And I think that sort of just taking that away and sort of letting artwork just do what it needs to do is like a really healthy place to be and disconnecting it from commerce can be a good thing sometimes. Yeah, because I got, I worked for a nonprofit and I got, they paid me a salary and I got commissions for art, but sometimes they would not be happy because I didn't sell enough art because I was really just trying to not have to sell. I wanted to sell art, but I didn't want to have to be dependent on it. And I, and I also knew that a lot of artists were dependent on it. So I wanted them, but I also wanted to have installations that weren't going to sell. And I wanted to have something that performances or whatever that we're not going to bring income in. Yeah. It's, it's a special place to be able to do that. Yeah. It's, not an easy profession. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also realize that there's a lot of things too that a lot of young people would come to me and this um, one young woman said to me, she goes, you give me hope because you you didn't become like every other guy your age. <laughs> like, you're just like that. And I said, she said, you're actually doing something that I really, it makes, gives me a possibility. And I thought, because I didn't think about it like that. I just thought I'm doing what I'm doing. But then that's what she said that younger people they're constantly told that they're doing something impractical. And then if they see somebody that actually is making a living being impractical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Still got to pay the doctor, but. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not rich. <laughs> it wasn't a get rich quick scheme for sure. Yeah. So do you miss having a space at all? Or do you just, you're enjoying what your, your family situation, teaching situation now? And how's it? Yeah, I have my hands full pretty much being a dad. And we talk about, we have a garage that could become maybe like a community space. Uh, actually. Yeah, I'd love to do another Hemet. Yeah, yeah. Some Providence somehow. Yeah, I think that sounds... I was in Europe for most of the winter doing a residency in Vienna. and I But... The funding there, there was like people that were making a living doing projects that were just like, here, they wouldn't be making money. Like they wouldn't be. Yeah. And they would complain about, or they would tell me like, oh yeah, it's not as good as it used to be. And I thought it's a lot better than it is in the United States. Yeah. I think you, you would see that. And it's amazing when you, well, the submission for, uh, there was a grant from this art fund put out a, a $5,000 grant for artists and I think they got 50,000 submissions uh -huh. you know, I think a lot of people are hurting right now and especially the IPOC artists especially yeah I think people don't realize how close to the line artists really are even if they are recognized nationally or internationally it's not yeah it's tough <laughs> it's a tough time yeah I don't think a, a lot of people because I'm still working remotely I'm working but I'm uh work remotely, they work for a marketing agency, but a lot of people are not doing, getting anything coming in and they're not really, and it's not a good time to, it's a tough time to find a job too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 
I think a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people are really aware of how, because I know people that have businesses too, and they're not, they're dependent on people coming in too. And they're, they're struggling. And it's, it is, yeah, it definitely, there's definitely, yeah, it's interesting because I try to think of the, the people of color, like, where I see, like, the city or something here, like, trying to help, but it feels like it's like this, it doesn't really feel like they are connecting, like, it doesn't feel like they're really, like, they're just saying, oh, here's some random, but they're not really completely aware of what the people are doing, you know? So I don't know if that's, I, I don't know, I don't know, hopefully, like, uh, the protests and different things have made people think about what they're doing and not doing. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope it makes a, has a long-term impact. This stuff is, people are over in Europe pro uh, protesting it, too, so it's. Yeah. My friends in Vienna sent me pictures of protests for Black Lives Matter that was just like, and there's not, that's not a huge thing in Vienna. But it, they were like there was massive protests. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm I'm happy, I'm happy that some of the things have come out of this whole thing. Yeah. Because when I saw like the George Floyd, I thought, oh, with everybody um, quarantining, that I didn't really know if anybody was going to get out there and do anything. But I was really yeah. surprised. I know it's pretty heartening. Yeah, Jim, I, I don't know if we've. Uh, you, is there anything else that you would like to address that you, anything, your thoughts and dreams or? <laughs> well, thanks. I really appreciate just making this space for, to talk to you and yeah. uh, really appreciate the, the time you put into to making this happen. Yeah, I've, I've connected with a lot of really amazing artists and I have a bunch of interviews next week too. And it's actually been a way, like with the pandemic too, of I. I miss going, like you said, taking, like you were taking students to exhibitions and going to exhibitions and being a part of an exhibition. But I miss that so much, but I feel like I'm like doing this is actually making you feel like there's, there's something you're involved in. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, I appreciate it. Keep your arm in shape when you uh, play catch. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. I still have my glove. Uh, I'm jealous I don't have mine. Yeah. I have a, I still have a, I don't know if you remember, this might be a little before you, but the Cesar Cedeno uh, glove. Do you remember him? He was on the Reds, right? He was on a few teams. He, he had Astros, the Reds, um, and he was supposed to be like the next Willie Mays. Oh, wow. He, but he, I think he came up when he was like 19 and had a, did really well, but then he was involved in some sketchy thing in Dominican Republic where a prostitute was killed or something. And, oh, gosh. And I think it, after that, he wasn't quite the same or I don't know what. I, I really know the story, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a heartwarming story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, he signed your glove. Oh, he didn't say. It was like one of those ones, the Rawlings gloves. It has the mass-produced. It says these are sitting. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, I have. I still have that glove, and it's actually a great glove. And I think I've had it since my like teens, maybe. That's amazing. Yeah, but I still, it's still like uh, in great shape and everything. And yeah. I, and I also miss, that's another thing is missing the baseball's weird, but like here they have spring training, you know, every year and I was going to that too. Anyway, that's fun. it was good talking to you, Jim, and uh, stay, is it cold there or is it warmer? Uh, it's pretty warm. <laughs> yeah, it's hot as hell here. Yeah. Of course. Okay.
Yeah, good talking to you, man. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you for listening to uh, From the Desk of Pat Green. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I'd love to hear some feedback. And if you enjoy it, please share it. And also feel free to subscribe because we're on Anchor and we're on Spotify, Apple, and several other Google. Just keep looking. We're there.